Hello and welcome to citiesabc.com series of interviews and profiles with global top thought leaders, experts and people shaping and creating new narratives for our world, society and business industry. My name is Dinesh Guarda and I'm here to talk about the biggest problems humanity is facing, questions and challenges and how we can think bigger and out of the box. CitiesABC.com is a new wiki for AR, intelligent smart cities, tech digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities, universities, and all of us citizens of the world. And uh, today I have uh, with me someone that I want actually to talk for a long time, uh, Henry Arshla Arshlanian. I never know how to spell it right. I think I'll try. Arshlanian. Armenian. Armenian. So it's an honor exactly. to have you here. So um, just as a couple of uh, uh, small intros. So Henry uh, Arslanian is the PwC Global Crypto and Blockchain Leader, a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, an university professor, and a global recognized thought leader in the future of finance and money and crypto. And as well, he's a passionate about the future of finance and money. And uh, I think, uh, I want to highlight that because I think it's particularly exciting and actually is a massive achievement. He has over 500,000 followers on LinkedIn and was recently named the most influential personal in finance in LinkedIn, which is a massive uh, achievement to say less. But besides that, of course, having a corporate career and, a, and a, an academic career is not a simple task. So welcome to our series of interviews. It's an honor to have you here, uh, Eric. Thanks for having me, Dennis. So as a start, uh, I would like to, I think, especially someone like you that is based in Hong Kong, but as well from an Armenian background, as well as citizen of the world, can you tell us about your background? Especially, I always like to go to the education because someone that comes from a country that is not necessarily the, the top countries and achieve what you achieve, even for me, is more respect about that work. So if you could start <laughs> by the, the basis. <laughs> Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me. And thank, thank you for your audience to, uh, I know, spend some of their precious time so we can share our passion of the future of finance, the future of money with all of them. Yeah, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned my name, Arslanian. You know actually what it means. It means uh, every Armenian name that ends with I-N means son of. Ars means lion. So it's son of a lion. So that's how uh, the, the origin of the name uh, comes from. So yeah, so I, I, was, I was, you know, I, I'm, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Armenian background. I was actually born in Montreal, Canada. Very typical, traditional family. Uh, you know, uh, gr grew up there. And, uh, I, you know, I used, to be, um, I used to be quite good in school. And I, I, was, I was lucky enough to go into law school. Uh, and obviously, so I became, I went to law school, became a lawyer. Uh, and, um, you know, I, as I was looking at even the, the profession of law, and I, I, I realized, you know, this, this industry is changing a lot. And the world is changing a lot, especially when I was in Canada, where things are a bit comfortable. Let's put it that way. And I literally one day I was watching this documentary on, uh, on, on China. And I said, you know what? I can see the future is in Asia. And I literally went the next day to a bookstore. I bought a book, a book called Chinese for Dummies. I booked, I jumped on a plane for Beijing. I learned to count from one to 10 next to this grandmother who was next to me and she had nothing to do and she, she couldn't sleep. So that's how we learned. And I landed in Beijing, uh, you know, and I spent a couple of months learning Chinese and I was very lucky to get a, a scholarship uh, to go to uh, Tsinghua University, which is kind of the Harvard of China, uh, to do, do a master's in Chinese law. Again, at a time, everybody made fun of me. Uh, again, we have to understand this was around 2005, 2006. It was before everybody knew what china was was becoming um and doing that obviously that was a, a the graduate degree there i did another master's degree in canada on transnational law 
uh, and then obviously uh, I then I actually stayed in in Asia. I moved to Hong Kong, worked as a lawyer for a couple of years, uh, then moved to uh, moved to investment banking, uh, and I was in banking for a couple of years. And I had at that time the same thing that happened. You know, at one point during my banking years, I stopped. And I did this uh, executive MBA at the Columbia University, London Business School, and Hong Kong University. And then I realized the banking world is not what it used to be. There's why are we doing the way the things we're doing right now? And uh, that's how I, I discovered uh, fintech and actually discovered digital currencies and Bitcoin. This was around 2013. And uh, literally, uh, you know, uh, that's how the almost it was the very early days of fintech. I still remember the first early days of the fintech community. Uh, I used to organize these dinners and I couldn't even get eight people to fit around a table. Again, this was really early days of fintech. And to the point I used to often invite some friends, I used to pay their dinner so I don't lose face in front of everybody else. And we created a little WhatsApp group. It was called the Fintech Aficionados. Uh, and really that's how the, the rest is history. You know, and you know, I left banking uh, and uh, eventually joined PwC where I, like I said, I uh, went up the ranks as well in three years. And now I run the crypto business globally. And I'm also a partner there. So a lot of interesting stuff. Education is very, very important, Dennis. I come from a family that 100 years ago was entirely massacred uh, as, as part of the Armenian genocide in 1915. And the last five generations, everyone is born in a different country. So my great-grandfather was born in uh, what is today Gaziantep uh, in, in Turkey. And Antep, uh, everybody is, those who survived moved to Aleppo. They did very well to, in Aleppo. There's literally a street called Arslanian today in Aleppo. Again, then they had to leave to Lebanon where they did very well as well. But then the war started. They had to leave everything and went to Canada. And then I, I came to Hong Kong and my... Uh, my two young kids are actually born in Hong Kong. And I always say, um, I really have no idea where their kids will be born. And I think this always brings into you this uh, um, attitude of an immigrant, where you really have hard work becomes de facto, where you, you always, always say you have to be a paranoid optimist and always sitting on the edge of your seat. And I think this is kind of the attitude that brought me to China in the, at a time where everybody laughed at me when I left to China at the first place. When I was in banking, I looked into fintech. Everybody laughed at me. And even now when I'm fintech and I look at crypto, everybody laughed at us. So I think it brings this mentality and education is very important. You know, um, there's a big saying in my family where uh, in various steps that we've gone through, uh, the only thing people had left, they lost all their assets, all their land, all their uh, uh, physical assets. The only thing they didn't lose was the assets that were in their brain. And this is why I put a big emphasis on education and languages, which I speak a couple of them. And I think it's very important. And that's the advice I give to many of, your speakers to my students is always, always to think like an immigrant, like a paranoid optimist. Yeah, I love that. That's a massive, uh, exciting, and it shows as well your passion and dedication and drive. Because I think one of the challenges we're facing is the lack of drive, or at least the focus on the drive. So um, I would like to start precisely on the education. So I think studying in in China and as well in Canada, which is two completely different worlds, I'm sure this. This creates a lot of different things, and they're coming as well from an Armenian, but as well an international background. So can you talk about, about that experience of studying in China when China was developing? And in the last 20 years, China passed from having a, um, a GDP that was like 20% of the U.S. to right now becoming bigger than the U.S. So can you tell about that experience? I think that's particularly interesting as well for our audiences, as well for everyone in the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I mentioned, for me, it was a pure coincidence. You know, and I've said this to many of my Chinese friends. 
you know, when I, when I went in China, one of the things that surprised me the most is people went there because they were passionate about Chinese calligraphy, Chinese history, many for Chinese girls and other matters. And I, I really went there really interested about the potential of the country. And uh, I will never forget when I, when I, uh, getting in China, obviously it was a big contrast. You know, uh, I remember I had my bicycle on campus uh, to living in the dorms where we had one hour hot shower a day. And uh, which was, it was a very interesting times at a time. And it was really, I remember it was before the Olympic Games as well. Uh, what, I, what really struck me was that, you know, uh, in China, as you know, going to university is a privilege. There's something called a Gaokao, which really means you have one exam in your life that really determines not only which university you go, but pretty much the path of your career. And uh, coming from Canada, where really, uh, when I say that in Canada, anyone has the chance to reach their full potential because there's a lot of student loans, there's a lot of government programs, which is something you don't necessarily have in other countries. And this is why I've been actually quite critical over the years uh, when I see people in developed countries who have the access to education via loans, programs, and other means, and who don't reach their full potential, at least try to, which I think is a moral duty. Uh, you know, I, and I mentioned this to a lot of your, your audience, you must see this in a lot of my speeches that I give. I really call this the lottery of life, where I believe, um, you know, the fact that we're all born, that we're healthy. We live in a place where we have Wi-Fi and actually high-speed internet, that we, able, we have the luxury to spend the time to listen to this. We're in the 0.01% of the population. And I really think that really makes us special that we, we had the lottery of life. And I remember when I was in China, learning Chinese was, initially was very difficult. I, I, I was going to drop off so many times, especially at a time I had a great job. I was in the best law firm. You know, when we talk about education, uh, I was very fortunate. I, I, I used to be quite good at school. I mean, I finished not only first of my class, not only first of my year, and not only first of my uh, faculty, but I finished first across my un entire university. I actually got a Governor General of Canada gold medal for that. And so I really had all the options to work anywhere I wanted. And especially what was difficult at the time was when I was in China, trying to go and do this thing that was outside of the norm. I had all my friends that were in these nice jobs and I had started their lives. And I really think it's really being this paranoid optimist that really is something that is very important. So China, obviously, we, I always say, me and China, we grew together, uh, you know, and I've seen the evolution over the last uh, 15 years or so of China in many ways. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, very respectful of the Chinese culture, the Chinese uh, nation as well. And um, so I think that was very interesting. But also, later in my career as well, I did an executive MBA. So really seeing this Canadian education uh, toppled with some of these, you know, emerging markets, China, especially at uh, Tsinghua and uh, Beijing University, where I had the privilege of studying. And also then what I did on my executive education side with the MBAs uh, really uh, gives a big, uh, big asset. The other thing I would say is languages, Dennis. You know, um, I'm amazed today that we do not make, encourage young people to even learn more languages. You know, uh, like I said, I, I speak five myself. I have uh, a lot of people in my family, like my, my parents who speak even more. And that really comes, gives you access to an entire new world. Uh, you know, I can have a conversation with somebody in French or Spanish or Chinese. It really, I think, gives you this power. And I, I find it actually quite sad that across the world, in many countries, we do not emphasize this enough because it's a very big asset, again, uh, that, that you hold for life once you have it. Yeah, and that's a very important thing, especially when it comes to your areas of expertise, because at the moment, especially with the increasing geopolitical issues, people tend to forget that we are part of global networks and you cannot forget that. So I want to touch right now from this background, which is amazing to, um, I think, touch your, your 
footprint in fintech, which is uh, one of the leading in the world in this area. So how did you come to fintech? And you mentioned that when we started, fintech didn't exist, the same with me. <laughs> we actually were part of inventing the keyword and as well all these things, but especially uh, doing that between Canada and China. Well, first of all, being on the inception of fintech, then on the crypto as well, which initially, for instance, if you would be in fintech or in banking, and you're touching crypto, you would be banned. <laughs> in some places, you're still banned. Um, yep. And as well, working one of the biggest corporations that works with all the banks. So that's quite an achievement on that. So I think the base is how do you come back, or how do you came to FinTech first? Let's start with that. Yeah, sure. No, at the time I was working in one of the large investment banks, I was in Hong Kong at a time, and I remember discovering FinTech. And at a time, FinTech was, uh, you know, if we told people FinTech, they thought it was the name of a company. Uh, and I actually remember from my first year uh, in FinTech, uh, and I used to give, like, like, you do a lot of speeches. And often I would start my speeches saying, let me first tell you what is fintech. You know, and again, it's, it's funny now how far we've came. Uh, but I really believe at a time, I, I remember one day uh, where we had this big town hall at the bank that I used to work at. And I raised my question and I said, I'm sorry, but I believe that our competitors are going to be the firms like Alibaba and Tencent. And I was ridiculed afterwards. People came and said to me, Henry, please stop asking stupid questions like these. And I remember uh, once I forwarded an email that mentioned FinTech and, uh, and literally one of my superiors sent an email saying, please stop sending emails about FinTech. We don't want people to know about this internally. And I just found that's very uh, dishonest, especially uh, when I wear my professor hat. Uh, you know, as, uh, as, as you know, I, I've been teaching the first FinTech university course in Asia for many years, I think four or five years. And uh, I find it unacceptable that, in, you know, even five years ago, even more now, we let young people graduate out of university programs without giving them the training that they need on the topics of the future of the world on finance, on topics not only on fintech, but on AI, blockchain, you know, and the broader cryptocurrencies, other, other aspects, especially that they will be, the generation will be the most impacted from these changes. So again, I was, I think, very fortunate on this. And, you know, uh, then we were able to build the fintech community in Hong Kong, you know, I was... Uh, I was the founder and I was very honored to be voted by the community as the first chairman of the FinTech community of Hong Kong, which uh, I've had the pleasure of serving the community on that perspective, but also working with many the stakeholders. Now I sit on the uh, advisory board of the uh, Hong regulators on, on, on FinTech, in a similar role with the central bank. And uh, I've had the pleasure of doing this across the world now in many roles. Um, when it comes to uh, the, uh, the crypto element, again, it was very interested. It was very uh, curious. Uh, you know, one thing I do, and I do this to a lot of my students, is every week I try to put the, either to a half an hour to one hour block in my calendar where I make a really specific effort to learn about new topics. And that's how I discovered at the time, uh, you know, I'm very interested in finance, money, uh, fi uh, law, being a lawyer by background. And, um, uh, you know, I was just reading about it. And that's, that's how the, fell, the cryptocurrencies. And this was early 2013. And I remember... I felt I was very lonely. You know, I was obviously looking at what was happening online. And I found in Hong Kong this one article that talked about this one guy who left the bank to launch a, a get into crypto. And we reached out to him. And I remember I organized, uh, it ended up being one of the first crypto exchanges in Hong Kong. And I organized for him his first speaking gig, actually. And this was 2013. And, uh, and it's funny, this was before Mount Gox collapsed. It was really a lot of these elements happened. So I really believe that um, whether you like it or not, cryptocurrencies, we have this intellectually, uh, intellectual duty to at least understand it. And this is often the message that I give to regulators, governments, and policymakers. You may like it, you may hate it, uh, but we have this, it's intellectually dishonest 
if you just disregard it without paying attention to it. So this is how I fell into it. And um, joining PwC was very interesting. Um, you know, after I left the bank, uh, we had a little short center a startup, and then I came to PwC and these large big four, and I think this is one of the misconceptions people have, it's literally a network of entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, when I came in, um, I told our my leadership, uh, when I launched this crypto team, uh, they were like, yeah, good luck with your Bitcoin thing. Uh, frank frankly, nobody knew it was gonna be so successful. We launched this in, um, before the summer 2017. So really before the big uh, bull market took off. And it's been obviously a big success story. Uh, you know, one thing people don't understand about PwC, the purpose of the organization is to build trust in society and solve important problem and, uh, problems. And God knows there's a lot of that in, crypto, in the crypto industry. And we literally built this business uh, from scratch, and now we really have this one-stop shop solution. Um, in the last 18 months, we did over 350 crypto engagements across the world. So really, which is we're by far number one in the market uh, from not only stuff like crypto accounting, crypto tax, crypto regulations, you know, AML, KYC, crypto fundraising, even crypto audit. So really, it's become this one-stop shop on it. And I think that the, from all the organizations that have a role to play in the broader future of finance, future of money, I really believe all the big four have a big role to play because it's still trust is at the, at the really center of it. And that's why often people ask me, why, how come you start PwC? And I really tell, you know, and not only we're entrepreneurs in what we do, but also I believe there's a purpose in what we do for the greater good, which is the crypto ecosystem and the future of money. Yeah, that, that's uh, very inspiring and I think very necessary. And I think special demystifying. So I want to touch uh, precisely on that angle because I think that, like you said, the, so for instance, if you look at China, let's say right now is leading in fintech, blockchain and crypto, whatever you like it or not, and take all the yeah. geopoliticals aside. There's a clear leadership. China just launched the, the blockchain initiative for all the cities and it's going to be around the world. So and you're based in Hong Kong, uh, or uh, normally are based in Hong Kong. So how do you see right now, so starting with the first question, how do you see at this stage uh, the fintech world? Because it, at the moment we have um, an emergence of digital, and especially even the COVID-19 is going to be even more important. But like you said, there's a lot of different velocities. And there's the legacy systems in Europe, in the US, and the US is really becoming a very complex country from geopolitical fights to even technological legacy systems, they're not working together. And then China is already like science fiction if you compare it to the rest of the world. So can you tell a bit about that and as well you being part of that? Absolutely. Now, let, well, let me start with, uh, with uh, where FinTech is and all the coming to China. Obviously, I think what's happening right now, the COVID-19 situation obviously is a very sad situation. I think nobody saw this coming. And I remember I was in, in Davos in January and we had the survey of CEOs of the risk they see for the year to come. And of course, COVID-19 was not in the picture. So again, when you talk about a black swan event that comes in, uh, one, one of the things I'll mention with FinTech, I think this is a very interesting time for FinTech. I think there's a lot of uh, problems we're gonna see with a lot of the FinTech startups. And actually as one of my big roles as chairman of the FinTech Association in the last couple of months, was to work with governments to try to support the ecosystem as much as we can. But if we look at, if we take a step back, this is the best argument for FinTech as a whole. Uh, you know, many countries where again, cash was being used quite a lot. I think finally we're gonna have, we, we're seeing a big move towards digitalization. But also I think this is where uh, we're gonna see a lot of the organizations who spent money, who focus on transforming themselves, pay off. But unfortunately, I think for a lot of the banks, there was a lot of window dressing. The number of times I've seen in innovation teams at banks 
who have no budget, who have no senior management authority, who are just there basically so that when kids visit the business, they can show a section where people are wearing T-shirts. Um, and again, a lot of the management, a lot of organizations are short-term focused. Uh, you know, uh, many there's a big joke that we have in Hong Kong where a lot of uh, expats are sent there, you know, and they care about, you know, they, they have a good life, the international schools, uh, the, 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 the big apartment, you know, the, they have a demanding wife. And, you know, there goes the next two, three years before they go sent back to UK or whatever they go. So unfortunately, a lot of these who are doing window dressing now will pay the price. However, organizations are really genuinely focused on transforming, putting in place this transformation culture, hopefully will benefit. Uh, but also, I think it'll have a bigger impact on the future of money. Again, one of the things we realize is people don't want to touch uh, paper money anymore because they're worried about the risk of contamination and the virus transmitting. So I think when it comes to digital currencies, um, we're going to see catalysts there as well. Also, I mean, I think anybody who watches the news with quantitative easing. I mean, I find this very interesting that uh, literally we went on Monday, uh, which was a very interesting countdown, the Bitcoin halving. We can talk about that if you want later. But really the supply of Bitcoin was cut in half. Whereas at the same time, we're going to a record amount of quantitative easing around the world. And I think that brings a lot of attention on what is money? What is the role of money? You know, uh, since we've uh, we moved on the gold standard and what's happening. So I think it's going to be very interesting from that perspective. When it comes to your question on China, this is something I've been uh, very focused in. And, um, you know, I, I teach fintech now. I used to teach before uh, Chinese law, actually universities in Canada. So I've been fascinated by this topic over the last couple of years where I've been always shocked to the extent nobody paid attention to China and the fintech revolution that was taking place right now. I mean, make no mistake for any of your, uh, you know, millions of followers are following you around the world. Uh, when it comes to B2C fintech, Without any doubt, China is at least three to four years ahead of the rest of the world. There's no competition. In the field of insure tech, I think it's 10 years. I mean, there's, I mean, there's different race. They're not even, one is in Formula One, the other one is the chariots who are running ahead. Um, and when it comes to uh, other developments are moving forward in China, again, I would argue that blockchain technology, DLT, is probably one or two years ahead of the rest of the world, uh, what we're seeing there. And uh, but also happens in, um, it's a very strange phenomenon, you know, uh, and there's a lot of videos uh, your audience can find on, on me that I have on, on YouTube and the internet on this, but from a big tech platforms, those are the entrepreneurial mindset. I would say also the people are generally more keen to try new solutions as well. So I think that's been really going on uh, at the China element. One of the things I'm watching right now in China, which I'm amazed, again, a lot of the world is not talking enough about, is two things. One of them is the uh, DCP, which is a digital currency electronic payment, which is the Let's simplify the digital yuan, which is the central bank digital currency of, of China. That is now uh, was announced uh, two weeks ago by the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, as being piloted in four cities, in uh, Shenzhen, in Chengdu, in uh, Suzhou, and in Shangan, which is a bit outside of Beijing. And um, this will be starting piloting. And I really, I think a lot of the central banks, uh, I mean, yesterday I was, uh, uh, I was the co-host of a three and a half hour session on central bank digital currencies at one of the big blockchain conferences called Consensus. And the topic of China came up once. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, we're, China is way ahead of everybody else. And, and I think one of the reasons is the language barrier. It sounds very stupid, but I think a lot of the Western media obviously can only, doesn't read Chinese. And there's this gap that we're seeing in the market. The second thing is exactly what you alluded to before, Dennis, was this whole blockchain network that has been launched in China which I think is, again, is, I think, a very big development that we are seeing right now. 
um, that was launched uh, about a week ago in China and is going to be launched uh, internationally, I believe, in two three weeks of the time of the of the taping of this uh, podcast. So I really, if there's one thing that I say to people is, you need to if you're focused on the future of finance, you're focused on the future of money. China needs to be a big area of focus that you're you're looking at. And also, frankly, as an individual, if you're focused on this topic. I'm amazed that I still listen to a lot of podcasts in the U.S. or in North America, and it's very focused nationally or very focused on the country. You need to look at Asia. I would argue that many of the trends we're seeing, Asia is way more advanced. I think that's what makes the region very exciting. As you know, that I haven't visited the region many times in the past. Yeah, that I'm completely with you, and I think it really scares me as well. The not only not looking and for instance very few mainstream global uh, financial organizations are touching the blockchain network launched by china the the digital currency by the central bank of china and i think worse there's a kind of a tentative of right now uh, especially the us which is very narrow-minded but not going to politics but i think one of the challenges that i see and i want to actually have your opinion on that try and just thought i know that you're very positive but I think what we're seeing right now is that China, it's getting, you said three, four years, I think in some cases it's 20 years um, in a lot of ways. And there's not because, I'm talking purely from the facts. Uh, and as well, the point is that in a lot of things, for instance, when it comes to crypto or digital um, and blockchain, we're still trying to understand what is this in Europe or the rest of the world. And, right. and unfortunately, that's a fact, okay? Whatever, I had the case, this small example, I've been working with some of the major banks in the world and I had, for instance, I went with one of my companies and I said, we're working in blockchain technology and they immediately took me out of the store. I'm not joking. I was literally took out of the store because of that. <laughs> and I'm one of the leading guys in the world in this area. So that made me scared because I, I feel sorry for them. Of course, they not just lose a client. Um, of course, they were not rude, but they were politically correct on that. But this is really very serious stuff, not only from a geopolitical, but from a lack of knowledge. So I want to right. touch that because I think that is, for me, the biggest challenge I see. Now, my last book was precisely um, Blockchain AR for, uh, for, for AR, Blockchain AI, Fintech, and, and IoT, How to yep. Reinvent Nations. And I think that the part of the, the focus of CTZBC is that this is a very important thing, but working to measure the four, uh, the four agents in the world of PwC, how do you tackle this because i think for you yep. seems natural but i know that a lot of people are struggling with this and i think it's really important to demystify no absolutely then it's a good question i would say there, there's there's a two elements that i approach it with but really brings comes down to education so let's start with policy makers and I, maybe i'll share how, how i've been dealing with this issue in particular uh, like i mentioned before i find it it's intellectually dishonest if we disregard something any time to look at it uh, for example um you know, topics like like blockchain or AI, crypto, and everything else. I think we, every policymaker has a duty to look at it. And now, you know, I mentioned this a lot. The central banks, as you know, I do a lot of work with central banks, and I'm amazed at some of the uh, government bodies around the world. You know, try to protect the banks. You know, and I remember I was telling somebody recently at the, even the Bureau of International Settlements, some of the original papers one or two years ago, very disrespectful of the the blockchain technology and the digital currencies. And I think that's you now. Finally, things have changed. I think we all came over it. I think people are spending more time. But I think any policymaker today has a duty to at least understand it and then make a decision. 
One thing I would say often in the broader fintech and the crypto ecosystem do not understand is that it's very lonely. It's very lonely at the top. And that applies for CEOs of companies and it applies for regulators and policymakers as well. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons that we have this duty of making this knowledge accessible. I always say a CEO cannot be seen asking in front of all its, its uh, direct reports, what is blockchain? Or a, a central bank governor asking that question or head of a regulator. And this is why one of the, my mission or my contribution to the ecosystem has been not only of teaching in universities and training the next generation of talent, but also publishing. As you mentioned before, uh, I published my last book, which is called The, the, the Future of Finance. Um, Trying to get it here. here. And yeah, really, yeah. the only reason I wrote the book um, was not because I had nothing else to do. And as you know, writing a book, as, as you know very well, happens you know, at, from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. on a Wednesday. It happens on holidays that I've spent away from my family, literally by the pool, just writing the book. And really, because I believe there's a, we have, all of us have a purpose to share with others. And I've been amazed, actually, since my book came out, not only has it became a global top 10 bestseller, it's won numerous awards, uh, but also the number of people in power, and obviously I cannot name them, but in, in very senior roles, organizations, governments who have reached out to me saying thank you for your book because this is kind of the information we lack. But also what I found is we have to leverage technology as well. Uh, one of the things I've done in, uh, for many years, I've been working on social media. I, you know, you've done a great job on that side as well, Dennis. And, uh, you know, for me it was LinkedIn. You know, I'm... Uh, I don't do makeup. I'm not a. I'm not an Instagram person. I'm not a TikTok. Although I, I try to experiment different platforms, you know, for me it was LinkedIn because at the time I used to work in a bank, and from my experience in law firms and banks, that's the only platform that people in banks are allowed to access. So I started to focus on that article, and I remember I started diligently every week posting content, writing content, and about two years ago I launched this video series that well, the fintech capsules and the crypto capsules that you see here. And again, initially, people laughed at the videos, you know, and, but as we all know now, it's because, as you mentioned, I mean, I have a half a million, uh, half a million strong uh, following with numerous awards that I won there as well, but it really allows me to give the message. And you would not believe the number of times that I've been in a meeting with any kind of policymakers and everybody would say, hey, I watch your videos. I, I know your 60-second video and I love your format. So I think we all have today with social media, uh, platforms like LinkedIn and others, and, and some like you're building actually, become very, very powerful. And we have to, we have to do, uh, the duty, all of us in the ecosystem, to share our knowledge. Some of you are good at writing blogs. Some of you are good at teaching. Some of you are good at you know, making images and memes. Some of others are good at writing books. And some others are good at writing, launching businesses. And I think all of us have this kind of a moral duty to do what we're good at. Um, and I believe that's how we're going we're gonna to be able to achieve kind of and build the future of finance. Yeah, and, and I think you're completely right on that. But, but I think um, I want to go a bit more provocative to you because I think it's really important as a teacher sure. and as a, as a global leader in this area is that the challenge I've been facing is really um, there's a dishonesty in a lot of ways of not looking at the facts and I think unfortunately that's the problem with a lot of these technologies but we have a, a kind of a multi kind of like a cyberpunk world emerging out of all of this uh, whatever we like it or not and I'm, I'm trying to be and I think especially being in Hong Kong which is of course China right now but as well a bridge to Asia in a lot of different areas but as well being educated between Europe and as well Canada you've been going through all these different different cultural and especially in the banking industry, it's very multicultural, but very uh, a lot of uh, fights between the different angles. So, and of course, we have the Bitcoin halving. We have the quantitative easing that is very scary because whatever you like or not, this is going to create another black swan probably 
of massive proportions. But we have a lot of challenges in the world that are not being tackling. Um, so on this area of your education and as well on the relationship between crypto, fintech and the regulatory part. So let's say from the work with the central banks, and I want to go one specific thing. Let's say when you look at technology, blockchain, fintech, technology has to be driven by numbers and it has to be driven by some logic because the algorithms cannot process uh, irregularity or illogic. But right. everything that is happening right now in our geopoliticals, it's completely crazy. And, and I'm not really going to any political statements here, but the point is that there's no logic. For instance, the Brexit, uh, what happened in the US with COVID, and uh, as well, all this, this challenge with quantitative easing. So don't you think we are creating an arsenal of massive destruction? Because let's say, if you put all the machines working aligned in terms of artificial intelligence and fintech, at a certain point, the machines will see this is not rational. There's no logic on this. This money needs to be deleted and all this debt has to be taken care. So how do you touch on that? Because it's one thing I don't see anyone talking about. Because of course, um, and as well in your book, The Future of Money, you touch part of these things. But I would like to, to, to mention this because I think it's particularly important, especially being in a big uh, agency where you are making big amount of research or regulatory uh, as well, name yeah. numbers and accounting. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question, Dennis. I think I'll tackle a couple of issues, right? I think let's start with regu regulatory and then we'll move on to the economics angle of it. Uh, on the regulatory side, I again, it comes back to education. I cannot emphasize, maybe again, it comes from my Armenian background where education is so key, right? But I really believe it has a big role to play in all of these things. I mean, let me start from regulations perspective. I have to say that in the, uh, the whole cyberpunk where broader uh, fintech or crypto ecosystem, there's a lot of disregards towards regulators, right? Uh, I would argue actually the opposite. I tell you in my professionally, my personal experience, a lot of the regulators that I deal with are more knowledgeable than the average financial services professional on topics like crypto, for example. I've been amazed. I can tell you some of the most technical conversations I've had on digital assets and, and crypto have been with regulators. So I think that's one thing that we should not underestimate. Uh, I think we, we tend to disregard this for a lot of the community. I'll give you one fun fact today. According to Cambridge University, only 5% only 5% of regulators do not have somebody working on crypto. So I think there's a lot of work that has been done on their side, which I think we have to acknowledge that. On the, on the central bank issue as well, I think a number of central banks are looking at these issues. I mean, I'm very um, uh, I welcome and I'm very pleasantly surprised and uh, happy to see some of the recent initiatives we've had. Yesterday, we had the ECB, uh, the Bank of England has an excellent paper that came out uh, about a month ago. And uh, the, the, Swedish, the Swedish as well, we've done a Rick Spank has done part of good work. So at least there's a lot of effort going on because the problem is real. I mean, let's, let's keep it very simple to the U.S. You mentioned before, I mean, because of the government uh, support system right now where uh, citizens are going to get uh, $1,200, I mean, the, the, the government, is uh, the IRS, is sending 100 million checks by mail. I mean, the fact that in 2020 we need to do this it's, funny, it's, it's honestly quite sad. I just find it's very sad that we have technology, it's available. There's definitely better ways of doing it. And uh, I hope this is going to catalyze um, the, the move towards digital money and assets. That being said as well, it's going to bring up a lot of issues I think we could talk about as well. I think there's a lot of the issues we're going to need to ask ourselves as, as a society. For example, today, if I give you this $1 bill, you have no idea where it came from. And actually, we talk about a, if you want to buy drugs, you should probably use cash. If you want to launder money, you should probably use cash because it's generally a very private tool. As we move to digital economy, uh, this will not be possible anymore. 
You know, so this I think when we talk about CBDC, there's a lot of benefits for central bankers, which is you can see the policy making, you know exactly where things are. Uh, but also, frankly, if from if I put my lawyer hat on, you know, one of the big problems we've had for the last decades is money laundering. And uh, you know, today, right now, uh, only in the United States, uh, Dennis, we spend over fifty billion dollars a year on, on anti-money laundering. And according to the World Bank, globally, we're able to capture less than one percent of laundered transactions. I mean, this is a massive failure, you know, and actually, I really believe the first time we're going to have a fighting chance against money laundering will be with digital currencies, because obviously everything is traceable. And there's a number of policy decisions we'll need to make. And again, that's a whole different conversation. Actually, on my next book called The Future of Money, I have, I think, about 100 pages now on, on the CBDC. So that's one topic to talk about. But also one thing that's very important, and I'm, I'm hoping this crisis is going to bring more awareness on, is the topic of financial health. And I've been amazed even today, and I'm actually very disappointed on many of the banks that today everybody's trying to protect their data, despite some of the initiatives going on with open banking, open API, or, or, in, uh, or in Europe, or in the UK, where you are with PSD2 and others, to try to have this more uh, open and sharing of information. Again, to benefit the customers, I'm amazed today that myself, despite all my FinTech knowledge living in Hong Kong, I'm not able to leverage good tools on financial health. Again, I'm amazed. I, I know I work out every day for my physical health. I meditate and I pray for my spiritual and my mental health. But how come I'm not able to use fintech for my financial health? And I believe, especially when you're mentioning the U.S., we just had the numbers come out last week of record unemployment. I mean, before the crisis, just to give you one piece of data, before the crisis, um, it was said that 56% of Americans had less than $400 of savings in their account. About 46, 46%, 4, four six, had credit card debt for more than two years. Let me remind, remind you, this is official data that was before the crisis. It's definitely worse right now. And I really, it's very unfortunate, of course, but I really hope this is going to bring more awareness on the topic of financial health and how we can leverage technology and fintech to actually be more financially healthy. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm hoping that if we as a celebrity, you know, we look at some of the positive, again, being this paranoid optimist, that will have some of the benefits that will come out over the next couple of years of, of, the, of, of COVID-19 will be some of the elements that I just discussed. Yeah, I, I want to touch that. That is really very important. And I, I'm happy that you touched that because that is one of the things that scares me as well. Uh, it scares me in different levels because it scares me in, in the way the society is underestimating all the, um, the look at this because in the end of the day, we need money and we need financial systems that work. But as well, there's a lot of right now issues on the demagogy in terms of looking at this and the blame game for us right now there's a blame game towards china which is very perverse because a virus is not national <laughs> a virus is, is right. much more complex than that but independent of that right now this is uh, is already becoming and a lot of the technology has been used actually to create more uh, dystopian uh, things so i don't want to go on that but so on that level and i think especially your work with pwc and with banks and I think that's very important. We work with UBS and, and we have the, the book Entrepreneurship in Finance and the successful launching um, and managing an edge fund in Asia. And then you have, of course, the last one, the, the future of finance, the impact of fintech, AI, and crypto in financial services. So on these levels, uh, so what do you think we can do realistic? And I think it's really important as a teacher and as an educator, how can we really go detailed? Because I think there's... It's, it's obvious that we have these velocities that China right now has the entire society completely digital. 
and the rest of the world is not not even close to that. And for instance, if you look yep. at the world economy, the banking industry is 90% digital or 95 or 99, but the economy is probably 10%. That's 500 right. million companies in the world for under 50, according to, to the World Bank. Most of these companies don't even have a website. Like not most, it's around 70 to 80%. So we have definitely a massive economical uh, kind of divorce between the digital velocities and the reality of the economy. So as an economist, or not an economist, but someone that works in finance and all these areas, how do you see this area? Because we need to go deeper, because the problems are there, they're getting bigger, but we're not touching on the, on, the, on the heart. And if you don't look at this, it's like you said, the 46% of people in the UK is the same or more. And these are yep. some of the top most, most uh, best countries in the world. If you go to France, right. the level of debt is even worse. So how do you look at this and how can we go practically? Yeah, so practically it's a good question, right? And this is something I've been trying to, and I, you know, I, uh, over the last couple of months, you know, I've been putting a lot of content out. I have educational videos. And a lot of people have been reaching out. You know, I'm very lucky. I have now I've got a couple hundred the messages from fans and followers over the last couple of months. And I, this is, and I have a speech on this called My 10S Principles. And I really believe there's a lot of challenges. This is not going to be a, a nice, but it's a challenge. And eventually we'll get, we'll, we'll, we're going to come out of it. But during this time, I think what you do is going to be critical. I'm so, dis, I'm so happy. Like, and I'm also disappointed. Let me give you an example. I've been talking to people since the beginning of the crisis. I know, uh, and, uh, you know, in Asia, we started in, in January. You know, I remember, you know, I was watching this during Chinese New Year in January, and people were like saying, oh, I'm bored. I'm watching Netflix. I've, you know, I, and then in the U.S., people are watching stupidities like, you know, Tiger Kings or cartoons. I, I, this, I have not worked harder in my entire life than I've done the last four or five months since the beginning of the crisis. I think we all have to acknowledge the world post-2020. Post-this will be very different. There'll be winners. They'll be losers. And if, when you talk about practical, I believe each one of us has a duty to upgrade ourselves. During this crisis, I was literally working like a madman, not only educating myself, learning about new topics, working on my next book, but also being, working even harder with my clients. And this is one I think I tell a lot of my students. You know, during life, there'll be, you know, I call it the seize the opportunities. You know, there'll be always shifts in life. I had it in my life when I moved to China and have the world, actually, China has become obviously a bigger superpower. When I moved to FinTech, you know, I think it became a big thing. And now with crypto, I'm seeing the same wave happen. I don't know what I'll be. I don't know if I'll be doing this in five years. But I think we always have to be able to see this opportunity. The other thing is really this concept of, um, you know, the, 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 we have to sit on the edge of our seat. You know, it's incredible. And I've seen this in banking. The number of, it's very sad, actually. The number, of like what I call the middle-aged man factor. People are working in banks for many years, had a good job, a good salary. Suddenly their job got cut. And they realized the skills they had in the bank was great. First, they realized they were overpaid. And then so they realized they were not able to get other jobs to maintain the pace of life. And I think this is why you have to be always paranoid. The way I do this, it could be interesting for your audience. Every month, I have it in my calendar. I spend an hour by myself, uh, you know, and I really go somewhere and I reflect, how am I getting disrupted? Is it my business, my competitors, what is happening? And I really, I think every month I'm paranoid that I will be disrupted. And that's what always keeps you on the, on the edge of your seat. The other thing is really working hard. And I've been, I've, you know, I've been, I really welcome a lot of your, audit, your audience probably has been working hard trying to learn new skills, you know, taking LinkedIn courses, Coursera courses, edX courses, try to upskill themselves. But if you spend the last couple of months watching Netflix and, you know, just chilling out, you know, unfortunately you missed a golden opportunity. Uh, because I really believe this was a chance to actually upskill yourself and come in. I always say this, 
Personally, I do not believe in work-life balance, and I've been very public about this. I find it very ironic that a lot of people who push work-life balance tend to be people who are older, who have done very well in life, and actually, but when you ask them how they made it there, they actually, they don't know about being, working very hard. And um, unfortunately, if you want to have the work-life balance, enjoy life, I think it's great, and you'll, you'll do very well in life in many organizations, but I really believe if you want to be number one in your sector, you want to be number one in your industry, you still have that extra edge. You know, to this day, I found, you know, I still work up, you know, very long days, I work all my weekends, because I find it's that extra 10, 20% effort that I put in that gives me the outside effort. If you want to do nine to five, you'll do great. But again, you, I think you will not make your number one position. I give you a lot of examples of sports. You know, I, 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 when I was younger, I used, to, I used to fence. Actually, I was, you know, I was uh, ranked uh, one of the best ones in Canada. And, and I remember, you know, as an athlete, and this is even when you see professional athletes. Yes, talent will get you somewhere. You know, having the right training technique will get you somewhere. But actually, it's the hard work, the extra mile that you go will give you really that big number one in the, in the market. And especially for young people, for the young audience that you have. You know, my motto since I've been a teenager has always been no pain, no gain. And you need to hustle. Unless you're hustling, unless you're doing this, I really believe in the world we're heading post-2020 world, the world is a little more competitive. I think this hard work that you're doing will pay off. The other thing is being patient as well with the hard work. Huh? You know, over the last couple of years, and like similar to Dennis, as our social media's profiles were growing, the number of people reached out to me saying, Henry, I want to do videos too. I want to write like a newsletter too. I want to do articles too. And literally, I actually have a video on YouTube, which is literally how I fill my crypto capsules. Literally, I have a video. People can see it. They even show the equipment that I use. I share exactly my process. And I've had maybe two dozen people who started it. They do once, they do twice, they drop off. Why? Because they realize, well, it takes a lot of time. You know, my 60 seconds video every week takes me at least four to six hours. My newsletter that uh, I just launched a couple of weeks ago takes me an average 10 hours a week. And as you know, I have a pretty big, you know, as a partner at Big Four, we have a pretty busy schedule. I have two young yeah. kids at home. I have a six-month-old and I have a, 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 a four-year-old daughter as well. So this is hours that I spend. I don't work on this during my business hours. This is stuff I'm doing my Saturdays, my Saturday nights. So I think unless we're ready to work hard, this is the practical advice I give to everybody. You need, whether you like it or not, unless you're a genius, and I'm, good luck if you have that, congratulations. I'm not a genius, you know, and I really believe that you need to work hard. And that's one message I've been giving to a lot of my students and a lot of to my uh, followers and people who have been following my, my, my social media on this. And I, I hope I'll be right. I'll be right on this. No, no, I think you're completely right. And I think, I think I tell that to my team and to all the people that are my family and my children. And I think, I think you're completely right. It's going to be, uh, it, of course, it's about the passion as well and the drive. But, but I think if you're not uh, having the hustle part of you, you're not going to achieve anything. And, and I'm sorry, there's no excuses for that. Of course, not everyone has to be an achiever as you and, and people like us that are really passionate about what you're doing, but you need that. And I think that is the key part. So coming back to, and we are close to an hour, but I think this is going to be a long one. And I, if you have more time, I want a, a couple more questions. So sure. as, a, as a global leader in crypto, and actually I admire particularly that part that I have to say this with all respect, because being in an organization like PwC and having built what you build, not... Right now is easy, but if it would be three years ago or four, like when you started, no one was touching crypto and they would be running away, very scared. Correct. And you were talking in the World Economy Forum about the regulation for crypto, when not, not even most of the regulations were even touching that because it was toxic. So 
from that, let's say, from the inception, and you said that you started in 2013 to now that is mainstream and you have China creating their own digital currency, Facebook creating as well their digital currency, wherever you like it or not. There's a lot of stuff that has been happening. And you mentioned the central bank. So can you tell us about that trajectory from crypto and as well a bit, uh, probably the last touch about the Bitcoin Alvin? And I think yeah, sure. um, <laughs> mention a bit of that. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I guess I've been very fortunate to be uh, to be following the space for a couple of years now. But I remember when Mount Gox happened in 2014, I believe. I thought it was the end of Bitcoin. I said, oh, this thing is done. I mean, it's never going to survive. And again, I was wrong. So, show, by the way, I'm, I'm often wrong, by the way, in many of the things that I, 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 I say. Again, it's important to have a view. Um, one thing that I, I would say, the evolution of this industry, uh, whether you like it or not, I, and I, this is the message I give to a lot of regulators, is that, uh, this the crypto industry is one of the few verticals of finance that actually lobbies to have regulations. Every vertical of the financial industry lobbies to have regulations removed, relaxed, and we've seen it around the world for the last couple of years. The crypto ecosystem has been really trying to put in place because everybody wants to have regulatory clarity. Once you know the rules, then you can deal with it. But everybody wants that clarity element. And um, I, think that this is, I think we made a lot of progress as an ecosystem. And I have to say one thing that I love about our crypto ecosystem is that there is everybody's passionate. Nobody would have been in this space, especially those who were in it for a couple of years, unless you're passionate about it. People tell me, Henry, what do you do on weekends? I tell them I read about crypto. They tell me, what do you do on your job? What's your job? I tell them it's crypto. So, you know, I think yeah, everybody is, a lot of people in this space are in the similar shoes where actually your passion is along with, with your job as well. So I think we've come a long way over the last couple of, of years on regulations. I'm a big advocate that for the industry to grow, go to the next step, we need a couple of things. We need regulations. And we also need clarity on other items like tax. That's one of the items I spend a lot of time on is tax clarity. It's great you have regulations, but if you don't know what the tax footprint is, it creates a lot of issues. Second is the entry of institutional players. And whether you like it or not, we need these large financial institutions. I know it may sound ironic to some of the people who have been in the space for some time, but you need these large institutions because they, they bring on certain areas expertise and experience. And that's one thing we're seeing right now that I'm very... I'm very happy to see the continuous institutionalization of the, of the industry. The other thing is some of the big tech players to come in. You know, Libra, uh, you know, I'm personally, obviously I've been following Libra 1.0 and Libra 2.0, and I published quite a lot of articles on the topic as well. Um, you know, whether you like it or not, one thing we have to give credit to is actually Libra brought the topic of central bank digital currencies on top of the agenda. I can tell you about a year ago, a year and a half ago, you know, I've had numerous uh, meetings with members of these organizations. And when I would talk about crypto, they'll be, yeah, Henry, yeah, good. Yeah, we are, we're, we're doing a research paper on it. Nobody would pay attention. I still remember, uh, I was actually in Palo Alto when the Libra launched. Uh, and um, I remember and, uh, when uh, this happened, um, really create, this brought it on top of the agenda of any, not only central bank and policymaker, but also financial institutions. Because from a central bank policy, of course, it has a big impact. Libra 2.0 actually was very interesting because they kind of invite now central banks who are interested in using the platform kind of as a white label solution because a number of central banks, especially emerging markets, may be worried of the impact that the, the, the stable coins that Libra is uh, going to offer may have an impact on their own economy. So I think it's going to be very interesting. I'm going to be watching this interaction between central banks, especially for emerging markets and uh, the Libra Association. Second thing is, is banks. You know, one of the things, as, as you all know, when you deposit your money at a bank, there's something called fractional banking. Again, uh, I give a three-hour class on the topic, so I don't think we have time today. But I think that, you know, for a lot of banks, the, the funding uh, mechanisms, uh, if people are able to take their money out of a bank, 
and put it into central bank digital currency, that not only uh, uh, may raise the, the funding rate of a lot of banks at the wholesale level, which is something banks care a lot about, but also in the event of a run on the banks can really, really uh, accelerate uh, an event like that. Today, if I want to take all my money out of a bank, I can go to the ATM and I can have a pile of cash, go hide it under my mattress. But there's a limit of how much cash I can hide under my mattress. Whereas if I can do it on a central bank digital currency, I could withdraw, especially if there's no limit, you can pretty much drain a bank pretty quickly. So I think these are some of the things where banks now are focusing a lot of attention on. And I think a lot of the banks we'll see are looking at tokenization, looking at topics of how they can use this in a better way. And I think I always say jokingly that we should all send a bouquet of flowers to Mark Zuckerberg because via Facebook, via, via Calibra, via, uh, via the Libra Association, it brought on top of the agenda. And when it comes to recently, some of the topics that I'm really following right now, I would say um, the topics always, always develop, but right now I'm really following the topic of central bank digital currencies. Uh, I believe that this is going to be a big topic for the months to come. And as you know, there's different ways of doing it. There's a two-tiered system or CBDC. Uh, by the way, there's a wholesale CBDC, which is between central banks, which is pretty easy. I want to say easy, but it's easier for central banks, but does not impact the public. What I'm following right now is retail CBDC. There's a two-tier system where the banks are still involved, which is probably the approach we're seeing China take. We're seeing um, even the latest uh, approach by the Swedish. That's the approach they've taken. We're seeing what, what I call the synthetic CBDC model, which is what the IMF has been pushing, which is kind of one-to-one -one asset back token, which is very interesting. Um, and uh, the IMF is a great example of one of those who have been advocating for this. And then you have the platform model, which is what the Swedish actually proposed in 2018. And now the Brits, in the latest paper of the Bank of England, uh, just proposed as well, which I believe actually is a model that has a lot of merits, a lot of uh, intellectual, academic, and policymaker attention because it brings forward a lot of issues. And I, I'm really following the CBDC space uh, very closely. I'm following closely what the institutional players are doing, following very closely what the institutional investors are doing. And um, frankly, I'm very excited to see some of the developments we're seeing in the ecosystem. I mean, the halving is one, uh, I think uh, we'll see the impact we'll have. Uh, I don't have any particular view on the impact of price or, or anything on it. I think it was, for personally, I think it was probably priced in for some time. But also uh, some of the technological improvements that we're doing on it. Um, I still believe this is the most exciting time in the future of finance. This is the most exciting time when it comes to the future of money. And I really believe, and I've said this over and over, when our kids and our grandchildren are going to look back at this period of time that we're all living in right now, this is going to be one of those pivotal times in the, in the history of money and history of finance where these big events happen that change the course of, of finance and money. I, and I, I thank God every day that not we have the chance of not only be healthy and alive and grateful for everything we have, that, but we have the chance to play a key role in how it's shaping up. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful uh, for this. So again, thanks for having me, the opportunity, Dennis, to share with you all today. No, no, it's, it's really amazing. And, uh, and I think your experience is particularly important. And I think like you, you mentioned, especially when it comes to this part of the central banks, there will be an urgency to solve this because this touches everything in society. Right. But as well, if they don't really lead this, we're going to have some big corporations leading this or, or even some countries and economies like China and others. So probably, and I think the last two questions, because we passed it right now one hour, although I think we have things to go for a couple of hours, so probably come back to that more no to topics uh, in the future because our channel will be growing and we'll have much more. But uh, so I would like to touch in particular, and I think it's important for the people listening to us. So 
on your work, and it's something that I really admire, your work as an author and your work as, as a, 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 a speaker and as well a thought leader, which takes a lot of time to research and to know what you're talking about, which you know better than very few people in the planet, but on the work with PwC. And I think that's important to demystify. And I think because it's not easy, your task in PwC, being in one of the biggest uh, corporations in the planet and as well having to lead it. So can you tell us a bit about that work, not on the commercial side, but as well on the processes? Because it's really important to, let's say, if someone on a central bank, I'm working with some central banks myself, and the challenge I've been facing is really, like you said, education, perception, and preparation. Because even people get one part, they don't get all the, the different parts. Because, for instance, if you put, let's say, a central bank, and I'll start with that. If you, we build a software, for instance, for a central bank, and uh, the central bank starts using the software, but then they have to have the servers and they become a software company, the technology company. And then that part, no one actually thought about it. So how do you tackle this? Of course, the Chinese government thought about it, but I think how do you look at this from a PwC and from a pragmatic perspective? Because there's, there's the regulatory part, there's education, there's the policies, and there's, of course, the technology part and how you implement these things. Absolutely. And... Uh... You know, it's interesting. I get asked this question a lot. A lot of people, like, like you do, they tell me, oh, Henry, how did you build this business or how, how can this happen at PwC? You know? And again, uh, it always brings back to a lot of these, uh, the big four. Again, this perception people have is, uh, is um, I, you know, that it's all just big old school organizations. Um, frankly, I think if when you look at the big four, it's a bunch of entrepreneurs. You know, that's literally what we do. And you have a lot of actually discussion of building the businesses. But also the good thing is a lot of very strong risk management. So and also I think the collegiality that we have uh, between colleagues is actually quite good. And that's what I think makes these big, big four quite powerful organizations. Um, one thing I'll mention as well is I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship. I think, I, and I say this to a lot of my friends who run their own uh, startups, as much as we need entrepreneurs, we need intrapreneurs. And I believe the time has never been even more, you know, more, uh, more ideal for any of your listeners who are working in any large organization. This is the golden time for intrapreneurs. Uh, I'm amazed. I know there's two kinds of people in organizations, right? A lot of what people come and they want to make change. What I often calls, you know, the answer that I hate, uh, and I always make committed that I would fire anybody who tells me that is giving me the answer. This is the way we've always done it. And I think there's a, the time that organizations have realized they need to change. And I really believe for intrapreneurs uh, inside all the vertical of organization, uh, this is a golden time. I really believe that. I'm a big believer that if you are the good, the great always win. You know, if you're good at something, if you're at a bank, a consulting firm, if you're doing something good, you're pushing the boundaries, it will get noticed, especially not at a leadership level. There's a lot of focus on actually changing the business. So, so I'm actually quite, um, you know, from that perspective, I think for a lot of people who work in large organizations, and I'm the best example, you can still be very successful and actually have a lot of, uh, be able to make change and be a game changer uh, from that perspective. Um, when it comes to the, uh, the, you're right, I think the, the world that we're heading to uh, is going to be very different. You know, I remember uh, when I started as a, as a young lawyer, uh, one of the things we used to do, we used to give our secretary, uh, uh, we used to literally give them uh, documents, we used to annotate them by hand, and they would go type it. You know, there was this whole uh, vision of you're good at one thing, and the whole idea, I remember uh, people would joke into law school saying, oh, we went to law school because we're not good at numbers, you know. And the same thing, you know, my friends were engineering. They would, they would tell me how we did engineering because we're not going to write it and so on and so forth. I really believe that, you know, in the past, while I, I'm from Canada, I always give the example of hockey. 
you know, yes, everyone has an edge in a certain position. Some people are good at goalie. Some, good, some people are good at scoring. Some people are good, uh, good forward. Some people are good coach. But some people are good at cleaning the equipment. You have an edge, but you all work as a team and you need to be very agile in your different positions. You know, I always give the example. I started as a lawyer, literally, you know, and, uh, you know, I have, you know, I have, uh, you know, I did two master's degrees in law and other business, and I started as a lawyer. I did my Canadian bar, my New York bar. If you asked me this question 15 years ago, plus, I'll probably tell you that I'd be still doing uh, law. And I, I'm still amazed people are still have the same thing. You know, then I moved to banking and then I moved to entrepreneurship. I moved to being a consultant. So I think we should all expect, you know, all of us, all your listeners, that you will probably need to be re-educated in a couple of years. And you'll probably be doing something different than you're doing today. And you need to be comfortable with that. You know, I'm amazed I still people that have been at the same organization for 25, 30 years. I think that era will dissipate. I'm amazed also, I blame also the academic world that we train people to universities with a three-year degree and they have a diploma on their desk. And then that's it, as if it's done. I, I believe that every year I make a point. Outside of the training that I get by my, my organizations, I personally try to get new courses in education to try to upskill myself. And I believe that's the way we're going to move forward. And this because, I'll come to your question, which is the different elements, you need to be able to be knowledgeable at a certain extent in technology, in regulations, in, you know, in, 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 in law and other, other matters as well. Because it's just kind of, a, uh, not only you need the vertical expertise, but you also need the horizontal expertise. And unless you have this kind of X that plays in both favor, um, I think if you have that, you'll be very successful for the years to come. But unfortunately, if you have, and I still, t- I still tell people, tell me, ah, you know, I'm a dinosaur with technology. I'm not good with tech. But my answer to them is, well, you better learn because, the, you know, the post-2020 world will be very different. And unless you're able to do this. For example, one example, Dennis, is, is personal branding. I, you know, I really believe, and I tell this to a lot of the uh, organizations that the concept of marketing before, uh, you know, is completely changed. Each one of us, anyone, yourself, the listener you have today, you need to have your own brand because it's fundamentally important. And today, you have the medium of doing it. You know, I film all my crypto capsules on my footage on my iPhone. There's 4K filming in my iPhone. That's what I use. I don't use any equipment. My entire equipment that I use for all my videos probably costs less than $50. It's a tripod and a microphone, that's it, right? And I really believe that you have to build your own brand. I personally, the way I do it, I refuse to meet people who are not on LinkedIn. For me, if I meet somebody right now professionally who is not on LinkedIn, it shows me that this person doesn't have the common sense of networking and basic you know, uh, social uh, community and networks and the impact they have. I just refuse to meet them, actually internally and externally as well. And I really believe that everyone today, especially if you're young, you have to focus on your personal brand. Be careful what you put online. So don't put stupid parties, pictures that you had from university days. But also, I think, make sure you're building this brand. You know, I get a lot of people who reach out to me. They're like, hey, Mr. Arslanian, I want to get into crypto. And I'm like, well, show me that you're into it. You know, that's why I recommend people take courses. Put them online. There's no excuses. I mean, I've been involved with Hong Kong University. We have a course on fintech, on edX. By the way, it's the most popular now, of course, on finance in edX. It's free. If you want a certificate, you pay, I, think, I believe it's $50, but it's free. We just launched one on blockchain. It's, these are free courses you can take on your LinkedIn. I, the, I never look at CVs anymore. I looked at LinkedIn pages. So for me, that's a better interaction of what the person has interacted, who they're dealing with, what kind of articles they're posting on, what they're passionate about, and what they're doing. I think all of us uh, in the new era we're heading to, we have this kind of um, this importance of personal brand 
has become even than it was before a couple of months ago. Yeah, well, I think I think you you touched the my my one of my last questions that was precisely how do you see the the message for this post COVID nineteen in a hope way? And I think it's really important. I I could not subscribe more. Actually, I'm, as a teacher, I've been as well saying the same for my students. And it's actually interesting. We're going to put all the links. To your edX course is amazing because it's for free and people have to use this. I, I actually it's exactly what you said. This you cannot just complain. Come up with solutions because it's it. it the world is it's challenging for everyone. So I, I probably as the last one, and I think we passed uh, one hour or something, but I think it's a great interview that has a lot of things, and I hope it will be inspiring everyone, and I really am very thankful. So how would you see, and your last book is The Future of Finance, okay? And you have the impact of fintech, AI, and crypto in the financial services. So we didn't touch AI, but we touched a bit of blockchain, a bit of crypto. So... As a final statement, could you give a bit of a, of course, this could go for a masterclass of ours, but just a summary of some of the topics. And I know that you have a lot to say on this. Yeah, just, just before, on the point you mentioned on edX, I highly recommend there's so much education online right now. And I've been really amazed by the way the power of social media and educational programs. Uh, you will not believe uh, that is the number of times I've been around the world. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know for, I'm very fortunate before the crisis, I traveled quite a bit and uh, to meet people in, in a cafe in Cyprus, in an airport in Dubai, you know, on a plane in Singapore, uh, you know, or uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a hotel in Colombia, in South America, who tell me, hey, I've, I've, I've been in your class, I've followed your edX class, or, you know, I watched your videos. And I have to say, it's very, very touching. You know, our edX course now has people from literally, I believe, uh, 200 countries or territories in the world. Literally wow. from, you know, so it's been very, the power of education is very important. And that's one of the reasons that keeps me going. Uh, and, and I think that's very, very important for, I think, your listeners as well. Uh, and, and it brings to your last final question, which was really the impact these things are going to have together. Um, and this is, I think, in our book, uh, we talk about the impact of fintech, AI, and crypto. And we cover each one of these in, in silo, but then we bring them together. And I think that's why it becomes a one plus one equal three relationship, because it gets an exponential impact. I mean, one of the things I've, I'm following right now a lot is the, the data. You know, today... We all give our data for free to various technology firms in exchange to be able to use their platforms. But obviously, I'm not getting compensated for it. These, the shareholders of the technology platforms are getting compensated for my data that I'm giving them. Uh, and one of the things I'm expecting to see right now is really over the next couple of years, uh, people being able to monetize their data. Obviously, getting my data, being able to monetize it and actually be able to share it with whoever I want it. And I really believe that this, um, this is going to be happening by fintech platforms. Uh, it's obviously going to have AI platforms happening in, you know, behind the background to price this data. But also, I believe the micropayments that we're going to have can only happen in crypto. You're not going to have a bank wire for five cents. Uh, all these things. So it's really the power of fintech, crypto, and AI. And that's the reason, actually, when we wrote the book, was to bring these three elements uh, together, how they're happening. You know, and, or even think about some of the, um, uh, the interaction we're seeing. You know, I'm, I'm going to have my smart fridge at home. But obviously, food and order is based on earnings. Also, it's able to price and shop nonstop. So unless when I go to the grocery store, I'm looking for a certain good at a certain time, it's able to shop on a continuous basis. But also then, obviously, the payments happening behind the scenes. So then it's a lot of these, these elements of fintech platforms, uh, uh, AI with the pricing and interaction, and also crypto, which is the micropayments happening via IoT and other devices, uh, which I really believe are bringing a lot of these elements uh, together. Um, and this obviously combined with other elements, you know, with, with cloud and others, 
I really make it a very interesting time. So when I was saying at the big, uh, earlier in the conversation, I really believe this is the most exciting time to be in finance, the most exciting time in the, in the, in the history of money. And I really mean it. It's because of this old combinations are coming together that I find are very exciting. If you're not keeping up uh, on top of the change, you're not learning, you're not reinventing yourself, too bad. You're going you're gonna to lose on this, right? Because as you, you know very well, Dennis, in many of the tasks that we have today, AI solutions are becoming way better than human beings. RegTech solutions, LawTech solutions. Uh, and this is a topic. I have TEDx talks on uh, both of them. Uh, this is really, these topics are coming up. Uh, I think we have to really keep this creativity, this, this strategic value that each one of us has. And I really believe that if you're keeping on top of these topics, you're comfortable reinventing yourself, uh, the future of finance will be very, very exciting and hopefully uh, uh, useful to many of you who are, who are listening to this podcast today. Well, I think we'll wrap up with that. I think we're going to put links to all your fantastic, uh, um, amazing resources. And I think it's really impressive, all the different things. And someone like you that is leading one of the biggest corporations in the planet, it's, it's really all this inspiring part. So I want to thank you especially and with all my heart. But as well, I think like you said, probably as a final message and, and probably provocation to you. So what would be the message? Let's say you are a teacher and uh, what is the provocative message? You touched that, but a bit like the final statement for everyone watching us, especially that is looking at finance, technology, and all the areas where we are one of the global experts. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, yeah, I, don't, I always say, first of all, I don't consider myself as a global expert. I always say that the, the person who tells you they're an expert in crypto, uh, you got to run away. You know, I, and I spend 24-7 of my time in this space and I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen a month from now. So I think it's also very humbling from that perspective. Uh, the advice is what I tell all my students at the end of every class, every class that I teach. I think many of them who have been through my ranks over the years, uh, I literally bring a chair and I, I, and I sit on the edge of the seat, literally, physically. And I think unless you're going to be a paranoid optimist, like I said, think like an immigrant, unless you're always thinking like this, you're paranoid about what's happening and, and you're working hard, Again, uh, you know, if you, you want to, you clocking off at five o'clock, you want to take it easy, great. May God be with you. Uh, but I you know I don't think you know, this is going to be the path to go. So think like, oh, stay at the edge of your seat, you know, um, uh, always, always, uh, you know, uh, be paranoid, but also uh, work hard, work hard, work hard. I cannot emphasize this enough. There's a lot of uh, systemic changes coming up. All this, there'll be winners and there'll be losers. And I hope for you that you'll be in the former category, not of the latter. And, uh, and I think, thankfully, a lot of the access, the tools that you have today to be able to keep up the speed today are democratized. Anybody can listen to these podcasts. Anybody can go take these educational courses online. And I think that's one of the things that excites me a lot about the world we're living today. So thank you very much, Dennis. It was an honor sharing our passion of, and, uh, with, with you and, and your, your audience. And uh, thank you very much for everyone. And again, um, for those who want to uh, you know, learn more about a lot of those stuff that I do, Dennis, obviously this is my website. There's my FinTech Capsule, Crypto Capsule shows that I have on LinkedIn. I have my weekly newsletter now called The Future of Money. Because you can subscribe on this on LinkedIn. I have my YouTube page where you can see a lot of my old videos. Uh, again, so it all happens with my name, Henry, what I, the French way, and Arslanian. Well, now you guys all know since the beginning of this podcast, means son of a lion. So thank you very much, Dennis. It was an honor uh, being with you on the show today. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. I, I thank you. And uh, it's a great, great, inspiring material here. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>